Hello, this is Josh Banner with a very special edition of the Invitation Podcast. My friend Micah Matthews, I met him when he was maybe a sophomore at Hope College. We would have lunch and eat Snickers salad and linger and talk about the finer things of life. And now here, five, six, eight years later, he has finished a Master's of Fine Art. And he also has the distinction of being one of the only people I've been able to get to join me in the prison prayer practices. As I have been doing this Kickstarter journey, I've needed a way to communicate to you the connection between our inner life with God, this gift of dying to ourselves so that Jesus can take up more space inside of us, and how that connects to the prison practices. On the surface, that might seem like a lot to put together, but really, in practice, it's very simply what Jesus has done, calling us to our weaknesses so that he can literally be strong in and through us in transforming power. If you're at a place where you have wondered where the long-form meditations and the short-form meditations are, there is a good friend of mine who has said that the Invitation podcast right now is talking a lot about the Invitation. It's a kind of chicken and egg situation where we're starting something from scratch. In order to do that, I am drawing attention to what the Invitation is becoming as a nonprofit, and I'm reaching out to you to ask you to discern with me to what extent can the Invitation become a more regular, creative resource for your spiritual formation. So enjoy this audio essay by my dear friend, Micah Matthews, and then afterward, I'll give you a few more thoughts about how you can support us in tangible and practical ways. Without being able to take cameras and microphones inside of the prison, what Micah offers us here is the next best thing, and he offers it to us as a kind of spiritual journey that gives us a sense of how God is shaping him in and through the movements of the Holy Spirit inside of a prison. Amen. Three weeks ago, the first time I visited the prison, Josh remarked with gratitude on the blessed lack of televisions in the waiting room. And today, the day of my second visit, there is a television in the waiting room. This is the room where you stand around until a guard calls you in and directs you through a metal detector and frisks you and checks the bottom of your feet for drugs or blades or money or something and hands you a device you wear on your belt with a button, which, when pressed, notifies hundreds of guards that things are not well with you, and sends them hustling protectively in your direction. The waiting room is a place to quiet your mind and quiet your spirit before entering the prison yard, a place that is not 10% as scary as televised drama would have you believe, but, unthreatening though it is, this is a setting that rewards alertness, discernment, and a thoughtful reluctance to do anything foolish. Thus, the necessity of quieting the mind and spirit, an internal procedure for which televisions are devastatingly unhelpful. The screen on the wall is a considerable irritant, but Josh brushes it off, 
spends one second acknowledging the TV, then, in reference to the sign beside the sliding glass door that ushers us through the metal detector, he grins and dances around a little. It is your responsibility to shake yourself down before entering, the sign instructs, and Josh is shaking himself down. I wanted to visit the prison because your perspective widens when you voluntarily enter hard, uncomfortable places and meet people whom you'd otherwise only know a distant, stigmatized version of. Until we enter the gates and personally engage with the people inside, our knowledge of inmates is solely informed by fictionalized entertainment, for instance, movies and television news. But what I longed for more than a widened perspective was the opportunity to be with my friend in the setting that has given him the most joy among the people who have given him the most sustenance. Only the most spiritually rich among us are open to dancing in prison waiting rooms. I'm witnessing my friend in his best place. We're escorted through the yard to the building called the school. And indeed, the space we meet in feels a lot like a classroom in an underfunded public high school. A similarity that speaks less to the prison's success in creating an educational atmosphere and speaks more to the high school's failure to avoid a correctional atmosphere. For the past few months, Josh has been leading the men through Richard Rohr's Breathing Underwater which uses the principles of 12-step addiction recovery programs like Alcoholics Anonymous to illustrate a path towards spiritual growth. There will only be a handful of books in the room, brought by the three or four men who have a copy. So as Josh reads, he will use that phrase one hears in under-resourced teaching environments. If you don't have a book, feel free to just listen, or look on with the person sitting next to you. We arrive early and situate chairs and tables, The chairs seem less like chairs and more like large, chair-shaped pieces of plastic, designed to be indestructible and easy to clean. The tables make a terrible screech along the floor and must be moved by a team of two. Through the barred windows, I see a handful of men in the yard, and they each seem to be engaged in tasks, carrying a rake or pushing a cartful of laundry. Sometimes, a guard walks along with an inmate, their pace casual and their posture relaxed, and they appear to be talking to each other in a normal, human way. And I think, that's nice to see. In the tradition of soft-hearted, romantic people, I am, in prison, ever alert for opportunities to say, that's nice to see. An announcement is broadcast over the speakers. Spiritual direction will now be meeting in the school. This announcement is hilarious to Josh. He whips his arm around in a mock rodeo cowboy motion and says, Come on down and get yourself some spiritual direction. As the men enter the room, they shake hands with everyone, ensuring that each inmate and each visitor is seen and known by everyone else in the room. It's a heartwarming practice the sincerity of which I've seen nowhere else. 
Josh begins with a few words about the value of what we're gathered there to do. This is not a prison ministry, he tells the man. His goal is not to bring God into the prison. God is in the prison already. Our purpose this morning is to sit together in stillness and quiet and attend to the divine presence, a presence that did not enter the prison that morning in our squeaky clean law-abiding pockets. We begin with several minutes of silence to focus the mind, calm the body, and ready the spirit. The men adore this silence. In prison, five minutes of pure quiet is a precious rarity. When the silence has done its preparatory work, discussion follows. It flows freely and without prompting. This is an opportunity for the men to be open and emotionally raw with each other, and occasions for deep vulnerability are, as you may guess, not always so common in this particular venue. As we proceed, it's evident that Josh's desire to learn from the prisoners equals, or perhaps surmounts, his desire to instruct them. He invites them to teach us about life in prison, and they do, with wisdom, restraint, and humor, and without bitterness, self-pity, or malice evidence that these men don't need a prison ministry. It's my impression that prison clay tends to be more moldable than church clay, that prison children tend to be more invested in the work of growth and spiritual maturity than church children. How about this for a prison ministry? Prisoners ministering to church folks, teaching them to pay attention to Jesus. Maybe young people would be less repelled by faith if churches became places where Christians could reliably be found. This morning, G is the first to share after the silence. G speaks like a poet and a professor, and a pastor, and a comedian. He begins with, here's something I've been thinking about, and then spends several minutes distributing very serious, yet frequently comic wisdom. G mentions Shakespeare, speaking across the table to Latorius, a severely intelligent, calmly imposing, miles deep, profoundly cool Muslim man. G recites a few lines from Hamlet, and this sets forth a monologue from Latorius. Delivered with such conviction, you'd think he was just speaking from the heart, just making some rhyming and dramatic statements about what had been on his mind that week. It sounds like he could go on forever, reciting every tragic act, then moving on to the sonnets. But eventually he decides the preview he's given is sufficient. We applaud. We proceed with Richard Rohr. We're on step 11 of the 12 steps. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. At the conclusion of the morning session, we stand and hold hands. A brief song prayer is sung. Everyone says goodbye to everyone else with handshakes and hugs. Latorius hails down a guard to escort us out. We're not permitted to walk through the yard unattended, and how I wish this weren't the case. 
It probably has something to do with the weather, which is pleasant every time I'm at the prison. But I always want to linger in the yard, walk around saying good morning as though it were a park. Josh teases me like an older brother, says maybe we'll bring a frisbee next time. Unusually, it takes a little while for a guard to appear, and for a few minutes we're stranded in the school. One of the volunteers tells Latorius he'll just have to come home with us. He smiles handsomely and says, that'd be cool. Eventually a guard appears and walks us through the yard, past the surprisingly floral landscaping, the line for the phone, the milling about, the extraordinary trash talk, the cafeteria, the basketball court. We present our IDs, return our personal protection devices, and exit into the parking lot. We drive to a nearby Mexican restaurant and explain with apologies that we'll have to be in and out quickly because our lunch break is short. My impulse, which I restrain, is to tell our waitress we're in a hurry because our timing is not our own. And our timing is not our own because we're volunteering at a prison. And isn't that noble and fascinating? My humility is imperfect, and it doesn't bother me at all when people are impressed by my righteous behavior. I would be well advised to place myself in testing and unfamiliar circumstances inside a correctional facility, for instance as often as possible, because we don't grow when we're comfortable. If I don't continuously pursue the benefits of discomfort, I will never be less of an ass than I am now. In the afternoon, we return to the same room and are joined by several of the same men, but the afternoon group is smaller, and rather than sitting at a rectangle of tables, as we did in the morning, we now sit in a circle beside a chalkboard. The chalkboard reminds us we're in prison. There are no instruments with which to write on it. But one member of the group has spent his own money on a piece of chalk, and this was money hard-earned, Inmates work, and they're compensated in cents. With delighted pride, he presents this gift to Josh, and with delighted gratitude, Josh receives it, thrilled by this new opportunity to illustrate thought. This is what I mean when I say the chalkboard reminds us we're in prison. In prison, you don't have access to simple, small things. G has started carrying around his own salt because the cafeteria no longer provides it. But the chalkboard demonstrates more than that. In prison, you learn to notice and rejoice in simple small things, like chalk. A big man with big facial hair and gentle eyes says that his prayer lately has been, thank you. He says he's been noticing things to be grateful for in prison more than he ever had on the outside, because in prison the good things must be actively sought out. During the previous week's afternoon session, Josh led us in spiritual friendship. I turned to my partner, Mike, 
a kind-hearted, wise-cracking man who's been in prison for something like 50 years, who speaks about the peace he's found through prayer, whose hand is tattooed, hell, and who notes from time to time that he used to be the sort of man who liked to fight. And we took turns sharing and listening and responding, I about the difficulty of submitting to God's timing, he about the difficulty of being locked up, possibly for the rest of his life, in spite of his certainty that if he were out in the world, he'd be a good presence there. This week, Josh is teaching us how knowledge of the Enneagram can promote internal, spiritual, and relational health. He's describing how these personality types correspond with different ways of engaging with God. Some of us are soul people. Some are mind people. Some are body people. The chalk proves useful. At this point, my activity as a volunteer is to sit there and learn from Josh. I'm in class, and Josh is my teacher, and all my classmates are wearing matching blue outfits. This is what I do all day in prison. I sit and listen. My silence has made Latorius curious about me. Josh has been applying the guidance of the Enneagram to one inmate's struggle in a badly strained friendship. And during a pause in the discussion, Latoria says to me, What matters to you? When someone like Latoria surprises you with a question like this, you wish more than anything to produce an answer that's deep and memorable and important and maybe funny. But without time to rehearse, there's no chance this will happen. I say something about making art and seeking God, and Latoria is generous with me. He's become one of Josh's best friends, and it pleases Josh to hear him expressing this good-natured curiosity about the quiet white boy Josh brought to the prison with him. My family is meeting my family, Josh says. When we say goodbye later in the afternoon, Latorius says, I remember you, man, and I don't suppose I've heard many things better than that. I'm not old enough or wise enough or experienced enough to speak with confidence about how a good life is lived. But I'm confident about this. If we're looking for joy, we should look in the least likely places. The places people who are addicted to comfort would never think of going. The challenging places where the hardest and realest of life is going on. For these are the spaces where Jesus is found. But Jesus is everywhere. No, Jesus doesn't care to hang out in boring places. If we find ourselves in a very comfortable, very familiar, very easy environment, it's likely enough that Jesus, bored, has stepped out of the room in search of a place where stuff is going on. Of course, the Holy Spirit will stick around, keeping an eye on things, waiting to be acknowledged or asked sincerely for help. But in comfortable places, this wait tends to be long. So convincingly does comfort fortify our impulse to trust our own strength. I came home from E.C. Brooks on Saturday afternoon, and by Sunday morning I wanted to go right back. When we long to return immediately to a place we've just been, it might be said that there's something enjoyable going on there. But when it's a prison we long to return to, it should be said that there's something mysterious and essential and life-giving going on there. 
I sent Josh an early draft of this essay, and he told me he was self-conscious about the way he was presented. I'd written about him so admiringly that it sounded as though he had no flaws. I agreed, but what flaws would he like me to attend to? I was writing about what I felt and witnessed in the prison, and what I felt and witnessed was that Josh had found joy through prayer and service. During those days in the prison, his faults were not readily observable to my eye, but he was happy to lay them out for me. He said he takes himself too seriously. He worries. He needs to be special. He's presumptuous and asks for help too often. He overestimates his abilities, and this makes him sloppy and unprepared. And I'll add one of my own. Occasionally, when I'm spending time with Josh, there is the sense that I'm spending time with someone who's carrying around the weight of the world and is encumbered by it. It is true that by glorifying our spiritual leaders to an overenthusiastic extent that excludes imperfections, we are, in effect, giving ourselves permission not to do the work they're doing because we haven't achieved the same elevated state. Well, perhaps there is no elevated state. Perhaps it's just the work. It is often believed that there should be no work involved in the spiritual life, that our behaviors do not determine whether or not we are spiritually healthy and full, which is why we encounter people who make a lot of noise about their faith, but are yet perfectly godless in thought and word and deed. This problem with the way we think about spiritual work came up in the prison, and this was Josh's helpful distinction. Effort versus earning. Learning to pray is an effort. It requires effort to be patient, to be peaceful, to be positive, to be selfless. Without effort, we will never study or fast or meditate, and these are disciplines that make us alert to God's presence. Spiritual disciplines are not works that make God present to us. Rather, as efforts, the spiritual disciplines can open up our chests and nudge some things out of the way so that our deep center can become aware of God's presence. It is our natural impulse to be closed to the divine and the opening up requires effort. The effort of silence. The effort of gratefulness. The effort of abandoning our comfort in order to go to prison and pray with inmates. Joyful living is rare because it's countercultural. And it's countercultural because it involves the rejection of the shit we're taught to prize and the pursuit of the abundance we're taught to disbelieve. I was comfortable and I was bored. So I went to the prison looking for discomfort. What I found was life and light. I saw generosity and warmth 
and goodness among convicted felons. If these people, who are assumed to be the most dangerous and morally low and spiritually lacking, are in fact making a devoted effort to increase their sensitivity to God's voice, how shall we respond? Shall we be encouraged? Yes, let's be encouraged. So Micah Matthews, a nonfiction audio essay. In other episodes, especially with Chris Hoke, Christopher Hall, and Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, we've considered the desert as a place of spiritual transformation. And while we can't force or fake our way closer to God, we can pick our bodies up, and put them in spaces like a desert where Jesus is more likely to get our attention. And so for us today, through Micah's writing, we are able to explore the prison as a contemporary modern-day desert. As we continue with this Kickstarter for just a few more weeks, the irony does not escape me that what I'm actually doing is asking for your prayer and your financial support so that I can then help you enter into the desert. <laughs> and this may seem offensive to some of you, that Christianity could be a kind of difficult struggle, especially when we think about the abundant grace that Jesus has poured out for us. I'm thankful that Micah included in this piece the distinction between earning and effort. It's that I have tasted and seen the abundant grace and mercy, the sweet goodness of Jesus' love. It's that that is moving in and through us that we have tasted and seen this goodness and we choose then to give our whole selves and to join the Spirit in the work of conquering our darkness and overcoming the habits and the disciplines and the distractions that keep us from growing further into Jesus' life and love. The struggle, it turns out, is not so much for God, but against my own darkness and my own stubbornness. And so I come to you again, asking you to enter into discernment the invitation doesn't need to grow anymore. It can continue just as it is. I've been working on these episodes later at night in between all the other things that I do. The idea is we're starting a nonprofit to create some more structure to facilitate a way to produce and to create 
and to invite you into a more regular, sustainable, and creative conversation about what Jesus can do inside of you in your own unique, particular spirituality type. If you have found spiritual nourishment from these episodes and other information and resources found on invitationpodcast.org, I ask you to enter into this ministry with prayer, with your own creativity. Reach out, send me an email, let me know how you're doing. This is the season for year-end giving. If you're someone who's already decided that giving is a part of your discipleship, of your way of living into the kingdom of God on earth, and if there's a way that the invitation could become a recipient of part of that year-end giving, we are a 501c3, and we would be very grateful for your financial support. Again, huge thanks to Micah Matthews for coming inside the prison and spending time on this essay and recording it. And thanks to you for joining in this episode and listening. As always, it is a true honor and a privilege to help you create time and space for God through the gift of spiritual direction in this podcast. Until next time, amen. Amen.